If you would open to Romans chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to work through verses 1 through 14. Earlier this week, um, my youngest son, Augustine, and I were driving home in the truck. We just left our favorite sporting goods store here in town, and he had gotten a new pair of cross-country skate skis because he's fast, way faster than dad, let's just say. And he was reading over the literature that came with the bindings about kind of how to attach them to the skis, and he ran across a phrase that said, goofy footing. And he thought, what is, what is goofy foot? What is that? He didn't know. And so he asked if I knew, and I said, oh yeah, goofy foot is like on a skateboard or a snowboard where you put your dominant foot forward and you use your other foot to kick or whatever, but basically it's backwards from where it ought to be. That's what goofy foot it is. And I said, actually... I'm goofy-footed, too. When I snowboarded, I was goofy-footed. And he looked at me, and we were suddenly in a new conversation. <laughs> he says, you snowboarded? And I was like, yeah, I, I used to snowboard quite a lot, you know? And he was like, I never heard that. Like, he was surprised. Like, I have crossed the threshold in my life. I am over a certain age where it was even possible that I could have done cool things in the eyes of my kids. He was shocked and stunned. I don't think he could imagine me on a snowboard. But I did. I used to snowboard a fair bit in Washington State, and there's some good snowboarding there, particularly up at Mount Baker. We used to go every year. And one year I was there was the year they broke the all-time record for the most snow, recorded snow in a given location. They had to dig out the ski lift so you could ride it. So that's what it was like. So when I moved to Fairbanks, Alaska, I went over, I brought my snowboard, and I went over to Moose Mountain for the first time. And the only time, and I just, I thought, that's not what I want to do. I I don't mean to throw anybody under the bus, although bus is an interesting word when you're mentioning (laughs) Moose Mountain. I just thought, that's not what I want to do. That's not what I'm used to, and I I just can't do that. So I decided to make a break with that hobby, and I sold my snowboard, and I decided to get into cross-country skiing. So I bought a pair of skis, and that has become my... Uh, sort of winter hobby around here, or let's call, it, let's call it the first winter hobby. Amy would want to correct that if she were in here right now. But that decision uh, and that follow-up action to make a break with one hobby and to embrace and sort of live into the other is actually, I think, a pretty good picture of what Paul is driving at in our passage today. Essentially, the question that he's dealing with here is, What is the relationship between the follower of Christ and the continual pull of sin? How do we we navigate that? And in one sentence, so Paul gets it a lot crisper than I do, but in one sentence, uh, in verse 11, Paul just nails it. And so I have that right at the top of your notes for focus this morning. It is this, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. So today's passage really picks up right where last week's left off. Verse 20, we were told that the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. And as we've been teaching you, the law doesn't remove sin. The law doesn't have saving power. Rather, when the law came, it magnified sin. It specified sin, it defined it, it exposed it, it laid it bare, it showed what sin was. In other words, the trespasses had been there all along, happening all of the time, but now they were specified once the law was given. So we knew where the line was even as we continued to struggle with the practice of sin. 
Uh, I illustrated this last week with as the surveyor came over to our property and defined where the property line was, we could see where some long-standing encroachments were over the line and on our neighbor's yard. They were trespasses. Once the surveyor nailed down that line, we could see where those trespasses had always been and continued to be. And now that they were exposed, they were particularly offensive, and any further trespass was especially egregious. That is what the law did for us. It is like a surveyor's line. It shows us where our sin is. So that's the bad news, but then Paul gave the good news. But where sin increased, praise God, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then Paul, kind of teaching this, then anticipates a question. And as we've been teaching, he, he kind of continually does this. He anticipates this hypothetical debater, and he brings up their question and deals with it. And the question he essentially deals with here is, if the increase of sin means an increase in grace... Well, let's get on with sinning, baby. Let's go. Let's increase that grace. Right? Let's do that. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So our first point this morning is this. Just kind of acknowledging. It's true. It's true. Our continual sin, it does magnify the grace of God, right? It does. One of the things that I've noticed in my own personal life um, is that the longer I'm alive the more sins I add to my record with God. I continually sin. Um, And because of that, the greater and greater the grace of God becomes to me. Not just cognitively, but experientially. It is amazing to me that Christ died for my sins past, present, and future. And as those sins continue to occur, his grace becomes magnified. It becomes more special. A couple years ago, um, Steph Curry, who is the greatest shooter to ever live, by the way, he's my main guy. Steph Curry plays for the Golden State Warriors, if you don't know, and an excellent basketball player, excellent shooter, the best shooter of all time. He broke the uh, three-point shot record with 2,973 made three-pointers. Um, and he, here's the thing though, he's still playing and he's still making three point shots. So he is now up to 3,447. He's averaging about five a game right now. And he, with 82 games, uh, a year, and let's say he plays a few more seasons, it's possible he could add another thousand made three point shots to the record he's already broken. And I think that's a very interesting picture and comparison to what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, Steph Curry is the greatest. But we're still learning just how great his greatness is because he continues to add to his excellence. 
And in the same way, the grace of God continues to grow, at least in our perception of it. His grace continues to measure greater and greater. And if you talk with any mature Christian, someone who has walked with God a long time, they will tell you that as they have grown in Christ, they become increasingly aware of of sin within them. Hidden sins that they may not have even known about years ago. Because they become increasingly sensitive to sin. Increasingly sensitive not just to sins of commission, but even sins of omission, of not doing that which ought to have been done. They become increasingly sensitive not just to sins of action, but even sins, the subtle sins of the heart. Sinful attitudes, sinful motivations. One can do the right thing, but for the wrong and sinful reasons, and it can be a sin. And the person who walks with Christ a long time becomes increasingly aware of this. I will tell you, the longer I live, the more that I sin, the greater the grace of God becomes to me. So the imaginary debater that Paul is sort of interacting with here kind of sounds a little bit like a frat boy, right? Well, if sin magnifies the grace of God, let's blow it up. Let's go. And Paul insists, no. Because our posture is that of those who have died to sin. The believer in Jesus Christ, he who is justified to the Father by Christ's sacrifice, learns to hate sin. Learns to hate sin. They increasingly see it for what it is, an offense against a holy God. They will not coddle it or excuse it or defend it or be dismissive of it. It's an offense against the holy God. And even in addition to that, it is also fool's gold for our lives. Promises something that it doesn't deliver. Typically, sin is a shortcut. It's a way we pursue some kind of freedom. I'm an autonomous person, not responsible to anyone. I'm going to do what I want. I'll do this. And in fact, sin typically ends us in some kind of bondage. It promises freedom, but it enslaves Understand, God did not just come up with an arbitrary list of actions and say, you know, those are fun things. Let's call those sin. That'll make it tough on everybody. But God has prohibited specifically that which is inherently destructive for us. It robs us of the good life and it robs others of the good life as well. So the second posture, not only have we died to sin, but our second posture is that we are to live in newness of life. And I think this two-stage approach here that Paul kind of unpacks is really helpful because it's rare that we simply say no to something and then we're done with it. I don't know if you've noticed that about behavioral change. Usually it takes two steps. We say no to something, but then we replace it with something else that is helpful and healthy. Um, As I said, I quit snowboarding and then I replaced it with cross-country skiing, and that allowed that to stay in my life. Um, There's the famous Scottish preacher, Thomas Chalmers, and he has a sermon title. You can only imagine the sermon that follows. Here's the title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. But I like the phrase. I think it captures something. When we're trying to change our actions, we want to say no to something. We want to renounce it. We want to grieve it. 
But we want to say yes to something else, to replace it. We want to grow our affections in something else to displace the negative thing, the expulsive power of a new affection. So the Christian's uh, posture now is living into newness of life. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the author of life and that in his incarnate state, in his embodied life, he lives out a true and good example of what it means to be human. It's a picture of the good life. It's something he is calling to us. And so in our discipleship to Jesus, we are actually receiving our lives back. Our flirtations with sin are actually a flirtations with a subhuman life, not the humanity God made for us. But in Jesus, we get the picture of what true humanity is. And in discipleship, we get our lives back. But don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It is so cool this morning that we're going to see six baptisms, six dramatizations of just what Paul is getting at here in this passage. Our second point, what does it mean to be united with him in death? Verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So the big concept here in this section is basically that we're under new management, right? There's been, there's been a changing of the guard. We were once in bondage to sin, but no longer. We don't have to be any longer. Um, this is a little bit of a confusing passage, so let's start with what Paul is not saying. First of all, Paul is not saying that the body is bad. I think it can sound like that at sort of first blush, uh, it sounds like, boy, it's the body that's a bad thing. If I could just get rid of this body, because, you know, the body is what's tempting me to sin all the time. It's just the body's problem. Bad body, you know? Let's just get rid of that. There's actually a philosophy or a religious group that took on that belief. Uh, it was known as Gnosticism. And if you're, if you're one of the ladies in our Monday morning Bible study uh, you guys have been going through this as you look at First uh, and Second and Third John, right? That was sort of one of the underlying movements. Gnosticism believed that all matter was inherently evil and sinful, so that the body, in essence, was sinful. And that led to sort of two false beliefs. On the one hand, it led to what we call asceticism, which is, if my body's bad, then I just need to punish my body. So it led to self-harm and, and mistreatment of the body. But the other side that it led to was known as hedonism. In other words, if my body is necessarily and inherently steeped with sin, then if I can't get away from it, let's get into it. Let's go. And so it led to sort of these two false ideas. So just understand, this is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying the body is bad. In fact, it's, I kind of wish all, you could just run all these letters together and make up a new, a new word. The sin-ruled body. The sin-ruled body is what needs to be done away with. Or we might say, the ruled-by-sin body. It's not the body itself, but the body that was living in bondage and living under the power of sin. That is what is to be done away with, and it can be done away with. 
because we are under a new power. We're under new management. So secondly here, we're more than a body, but not less. And um, I think this is an important concept for our our culture right now, there's a, uh, a lot, of, I think, misunderstanding of what is the relationship between sort of the soul and the body. There's an excellent book written by Nancy Piercy, and Keith Payne borrowed my copy and hasn't returned it yet, so if you see him, let him know I'm looking for it. He'll love that. I listed it in your notes. Um, it's called Love Thy Body, and it talks about the relationship between sort of the soul and the body, particularly with regards to sexuality and some of the debates in our current culture right now. It's a really helpful book, so I would encourage you to look over that. Um, but essentially what we're seeing here, again, it's, we're under new management. We're not, our body is no longer a slave to sin. We have new power and new agency by the Spirit of God to live differently. And St. Augustine laid this out really well, and I say, forgive me, it's in Latin, but that's what it is. And I'm going to work through this again. And I did not put it in your notes, but I'm going to, if you're interested in it, later this week you can go online and download, download the new notes, and I will add this for you along with a link to another good article. But um, Augustine talked about our bondage, uh, bondage to the, of the will. So here's what it looks like. Four stages of humanity. First of all, we begin with what he calls passe non peccare. Passe non peccare, which means the ability not to sin. Adam and Eve were created with the ability not to sin. They could sin or not sin. They had that choice. Well, we know what happened. They sinned. And when they did that, they changed really the constitution of mankind. And so we enter the second stage. Because of their fall, because of the curse, we enter the second stage, which is now non posse, non picare. In other words, mankind was unable not to sin. We were in bondage to it. That's where we were. But by the grace of God, Jesus enters the situation and he goes to the cross for us. And because of his death and his sacrifice and his pouring out of the spirit for those who repent and believe in him, we Christians enter a third stage. We have the, what is posse non picare which is after our conversion, it is possible not to sin. We can resist the power of sin. The power of the Spirit of God is within us who leads us to obey. But praise God, there's a fourth category, and I look forward to this one personally, which is non passe peccare. There is a day coming where it will not be possible for you or anyone to sin. And that will be a good day. That is the day of glorification when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom and sets it up fully and finally and all things will be as they ought to be, impossible not to sin. So the body is not bad. We are more than a body, but not less. And thirdly, we no longer live merely for the bodily pleasures. We have been crucified with Christ. We are now dead to sin, which means the reign of sin is over. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, that sounds really good. But to be honest with you, I still sin a little, a little bit. I still want to sin. I want to sin more than I do sin, but I still sin. In fact, I have a few of my favorite sins, and I, I keep sinning. The encouraging message here, though, is you don't have to sin. And you don't have to accept that defeatist mentality. We're no longer under the rule and reign of sin in our bodies. 
We're still fighting with it and contending with it, but now we have power to do so. God has given you, Christian, power to fight back over sin. And if you're sitting here thinking, I'm not sure I know how to tap into that power, what exactly that is, I want to encourage you to go back and read Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. Let that be your devotional reading for the week. Just go through those chapters and let Paul remind you of the incredible power of the Spirit of God that is available, that is at work within you. I, I think this particular section in Romans is where Tolkien derives his line from Lord Elrond uh, to Strider when he says, the man who can wield the power of this sword can summon to him an army more deadly than any that walks the earth. And then he says, put aside the ranger, become who you were born to be. And if this isn't where he got it from, it's where he should have gotten it from. (laughs) Because that's what it says. You don't have to be this. Set it aside. Become who you were born to be. Live into this, this profound power to walk in newness of life. Verse eight. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died for sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So our third point is this. What does it mean to be united with him in resurrected life? If you've been paying attention through the text, you will have noticed this idea, this concept of resurrection and new life keeps coming up. In verse 5, united with him in death, united with him in resurrection. In verse 4, as Christ was raised, we too may live a new life. In verse 8, this phrase, dead to sin, but alive to God. So what is, it, what is this resurrection bit? How is it that we're united to that? And this is a, a, a kind of a nuanced point I need to make, so I need your best attention on this. First of all, there is a future resurrection to come. This is the sure hope of Christians, a living hope, because Christ is alive. He is the precedent of our future resurrection, and we look for and long for that. Amen? We know that is coming. Secondly here, there is a kind of present resurrection, all right? And I need to be careful about this. In other words, we have already been raised with Christ. We have been raised to a new kind of life. We have been raised with a new kind of power in the here and now to live that obedient life. Um, In the same way that we might talk about the kingdom of God that is both now and not yet, right? When Jesus came, he said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Is it fully here? No. So we call this inaugurated eschatology, where he he inaugurates, he begins the kingdom of God, his rule and reign starts in our hearts and grows in the world, and there is a future day when it's fully consummated and we see the full kingdom of God. In the same way as the kingdom of God is both now and not yet, we could say similarly that there is a resurrection to new life that is now, but not yet full. Now, there are some errors here, and I'm just going to focus on one in particularly. There is a a group that sort of practices what we would call, this is a big one, over-realized eschatology. If you can repeat that after lunch today, good memory. Over-realized eschatology. And basically what that group teaches is that all of the benefits and the blessings of the resurrection to come are available in the here and now. That's an overstatement. 
It's an overpromise, and it will underdeliver, and that's what's problematic about it. But here's what it looks like. It will say, since in the future there is no more death, no more disease, no more dying, anything like that, well, then we can claim that now. So you ought to expect miracles, and you ought to expect healing, and you ought to pray for and expect even resurrection from the dead in the here and now. That's one of the places it goes. One of the other things that we'll claim is it will say, since everything belongs to God, we claim it now leads to prosperity gospel. Or it will say, this idea of name it, claim it, spirituality, just, just manifest your desires. You've probably heard some phrases like that or seen them around social media. One other place that shows up, and this might surprise you, and this is sort of on the fundamentalist side of things, is in what we call Christian nationalism, which is where they say, effectively, it is we Christians who usher in the kingdom of God. Therefore, let's get to the levers of power in politics and we will bring the kingdom of God ourselves. All of these things are, a way, are, are an expression of overrealized eschatology, where we're, we're seeing the future, and since we have been in, raised in a sense now, we're claiming all of that for the now, and it's a trap. So cue Admiral Akbar here, it's a trap. Some of the places that you will continually see this or run into this, and I'm sorry to say one of them is, in, is on K-Love Radio. If you listen to much of the music, they will talk. You can even hear in some of the live music when they hit the resurrection note, there's sort of this cheering and you can hear. They don't, they're not talking about that resurrection. They're talking about an overrealized eschatology, an overrealized resurrection in the here and now. And usually in their, in their singing, it's something like miracles and signs and whatever follow. So we're hearing that a lot from them. Hillsong is another church that traffic's in this quite a lot, and you have to be really careful what, they have some good songs and some bad songs. We have to really be careful and sort of spot the lie in these things. There's a lot I could go, I, gotta, I need to save my time here for other things, but um, there is one way in which we already have been raised with Christ. That is true, right? We have been raised to live a new kind of life in the here and now. We have a new power to do it. We have a new ability by the Spirit of God to walk in newness of life to walk in obedience, to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a fuller, better bodily resurrection to come whose blessings are not yet ours, but we will have them one day. And we wait patiently for that day. So what is this present resurrection? Finally, it's this. We are now increasingly living a Godward life. As Paul goes on to show us what it looks like, you'll notice the outworking of this newness of life. It's not miracles on the ready. It's not prosperity. It's not healing. It's not positions of power. It's discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's obedience and imitation of him. There's a helpful parallel passage to this in Galatians 2. Actually, Galatians and Romans are kind of like Cliff's Notes versions and the long version. They're very similar books. But in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if the righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So this is how we have died, and this is to this that we are raised. Now, the next verse here, verse 11, is really a key transitional verse. 
In the same way, and this was our starting point, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourself dead to sin. Um, in this verse, Paul uses a very interesting word. It's a word that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Remember, it was this accounting word, loizomai. If you remember the little song I tried to stick in your head, loizomai. It sounds like a away, right? Loizomai. He brings it up again. We saw it when we talked about, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's loizomai. Well, here it's used again, and in this place, it's count yourself. But it's an accounting word. It means to count, to reckon, to consider, to confer a status upon. So when Paul says, loizomai, yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ, I might phrase it this way. Agree with God about your standing in him. Agree with God. It's his accounting. Accept it. Believe it. And live into it. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. So a quick caveat I would give here is this. I personally don't believe that anyone after their conversion will go on and then live a sinless and perfect life. I don't even think it's possible. Some people would disagree with me. Some people would say it is possible and we ought to strive for it. And that's neither here, here nor there. But I don't believe it is possible. Um, I do believe strongly, however, in what we call progressive sanctification, which is mean that steadily and increasingly we become more and more like the person of Jesus Christ as we live in the power of the Spirit and we practice discipleship. And... Um, I think there's two real practical bits of application that Paul gives us here. The first is this. In order to do this, in order to progress in our sanctification, our growing up into Christ-likeness, the first is discipline yourself to kill sin. Not to coddle it, not to defend it, not to think it no big deal, but to kill it. I love what John Owen says. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So we discipline ourselves to kill sin. Uh, Dallas Willard, a favorite author and teacher of mine, um, has uh, wrote an excellent book called Spirit of the Disciplines. And I read it back in college. And in that book, he makes the point that our bodies are a tool and an instrument that we can use to train ourselves in godliness. We can practice habits that lead us to Christ-likeness. And he sort of gave two categories. One category was disciplines of abstinence, and the other is disciplines of engagement. Disciplines of engagement we're pretty, we're pretty familiar with. These are things like reading, praying, worship, study, celebration. In fact, I would argue that the contemporary evangelical church almost only does disciplines of engagement. But there are other disciplines that could be done. These are disciplines of abstinence. These are ways of practicing saying no to something. For example, fasting or silence or giving or solitude or sacrifice. 
In other words, if I'm sitting here thinking, do you know what? I'm struggling with indulging in certain things, whether it's food or drink or sensuality. One of the ways that I can help myself grow in godliness is to practice saying no. Fasting can be a tool to practice saying no, to to learn to live with a bit of discomfort and to get better and better at saying no to something. So disciplines of engagement, disciplines uh, of abstinence, these are ways that we can use our body to train ourselves in godliness. And I love this line that Willard said. He says that the discipline you need to practice most is particularly that discipline that's most difficult for you. You go to the gymnasium, and you know where you're struggling. You know what machine you need to be on, and you know what machine you hate to be on. That's the machine you ought to be on. I think in the same way as we discipline ourselves for godliness, that that discipline which is hardest is most needed. And then finally, discipline yourself to delight in God's grace. To delight in his grace. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law. You're under grace. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression um, before of pushing a rope. Have you ever heard of that? Pushing a rope. You can envision it. Pushing a rope. It's not going to get anything done. But the idea of a rope is when it's properly attached and it's pulled, then it's effective. And I think that's a good picture of the difference between law and grace. Law is like pushing a rope. But fixing our hearts and minds on the grace of God is like the pull of a rope where we are drawn to him, drawn to holiness and obedience because of his magnificent grace in our lives. Paul says as much um, to Titus in Titus 2.11, and I'll close with this passage. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of glory and our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify himself for himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Church family, count yourself dead to sin. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that these words are not just thrown out there without power and effect, but you have given us your very spirit. The spirit of God indwells us. It is convicting our consciences, illuminating the scripture, reminding us of the teachings of Christ, and prompting us to live into the godliness that he modeled. Lord, we recognize that that is true humanity, good humanity, the humanity you intended for us. So as we follow Jesus, our Lord and Savior, may we be good disciples, followers of him in word and deed and in heart's affections. We love you. We thank you for his sacrifice. May we live into it well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.